You are listening to Mosul in the Islamic State. Its episodes contain content which may be disturbing or upsetting. Listener discretion is advised. Previously on Mosul and the Islamic State. Everything felt like a trap. Millions of Iraqis headed out to vote, in spite of bombings and several mortar attacks. People will not overnight become democratic forces. The difference with Mosul is they all withdrew. By end of 2005, Mosul was the city of jihadism. And who was on top? Of course, it was Al-Qaeda in Iraq. In the day, the streets owned by the army, and the night, they were owned by ISIS. Despite their fears, the people turned against them. And when they did, the Islamic State of Iraq collapsed. The surge of ideas did actually matter much more than the surge of forces. I was not convinced that we had solved any of the major issues facing the local community and the security forces that we supported. The winner of this war will be the one who can prepare and plan for the period after American troops withdraw. We're not attacking the corrupt people. They needed those corrupt people. I want our audience to hear what Maslawis heard and believed during the confusion and the crisis of those days. Then make up your mind about my city and its people. My name is Omar Muhammad. I was born and raised in Mosul. It's my city. When it was captured by Daesh in 2014, I wrote from the occupied city under the pen name Mosul-I. So much has been said about Mosul and the Islamic State, mostly by people outside the city. Now, with my co-host Haroro Ingram, and thanks to the program on extremism at George Washington University, we will tell the untold story of Mosul and the struggle of its people This story will be told to you by those who were there, and most importantly, by Maslawis themselves. Episode 3 Hell Part 1 Betrayed This is the part of the story that everybody thinks they know. ISIS captures Raqqa in Syria in January 2014 and, like an unstoppable force, makes its way eastward across the Syria-Iraq border and, inevitably it seems, towards Mosul, Iraq's second largest city of over a million people. This ancient city sits on the banks of the Tigris River, which runs through its centre. Mosul is that great city of Nineveh, the location of the story shared between Judaism, Christianity and Islam of Jonah or the prophet Eunice, who, upon being given the task of saving its people by God, initially saw the destruction of Nineveh as inevitable and tried to escape, instead of warning them, as God had asked. But, eventually, he returned to the city to prophesy to its people, which saved them from God's punishment. In July 2014, a month after capturing Mosul, the Islamic State destroyed Nabi Yunus' shrine, Jonah's tomb, in an act that, in so many ways, was a symbol of the tragedies that would befall the city and its people over the coming years. The capture and occupation of Mosul in June 2014 was not inevitable. Such fatalism about the city's destruction is too convenient. It gives too many people, not only those who contributed to the dominoes falling, but those in power who saw the warning signs and ignored them, a ready-made excuse. Interwoven in this sense of inevitability, is often the stated or implied complicity 
of everyday Maslawis, that the people of Mosul, at best, let ISIS in, at worst, welcome them. Omar, we have covered a lot of history so far, and now we are in those final weeks before the fall of Mosul, and soon we will get to what you have described as the three crucial days, from June 7 to June 10. So let's set the scene for our listeners. The capture of Mosul needs to be understood through several layers of context. We have spent the first two episodes providing that broader historical context, but now there is a strategic and operational context that needs to be understood. The Iraqi security forces in Mosul didn't just decide to collapse in the first two weeks of June 2014. That collapse was the result of an ongoing campaign by ISIS to weaken the security forces in Mosul and exploit the grievances in the population. Here is Craig Whiteside, US Army combat veteran and co-author of the ISIS Reader. Starting in 2009, we have indications that the Islamic State is increasingly entrenched economically in the Mosul area of Nineveh. We also have captured documents that establish indications and attempts to form shadow governance over this area, particularly Mosul, as well as extortions, kidnapping for ransom, and bribery to release Islamic State captured comrades in what looks to be an attempt to infiltrate Sunni-run provinces and reach accommodations. Leading to the capture of Mosul, the Islamic State launched a major campaign it called harvesting. Harvesting is when ISIS targets security personnel killing military, police, and governmental officials with all kinds of attacks. There are random attacks on security personnel, such as roadside IED attacks on convoys, sniper attacks on bases, shooting street cops on the corner. Alongside these random attacks are also targeted attacks, like drive-by shootings as officers go to work, or ISIS militants would dress in Iraqi military and police uniforms to assassinate security personnel at night in their own houses. Such attacks require intelligence collection and sometimes weeks or even months of planning. ISIS would video the attacks and the future of the footage in its propaganda to amplify the impact of its campaign. The Islamic State's harvesting campaign as a strategy is designed to achieve a number of goals. First, it sows fear in the ranks of the security sector. Now, commanders start to second-guess where to deploy their personnel. When they do deploy personnel, often extra personnel and resources are assigned for protection, and forces inevitably get prioritised and concentrated in areas that are deemed important, which, potentially leaves gaps in other areas. This creates a little more space, a little more wiggle room for ISIS to exert its influence. I can say, having lived through this, that it is very disorientating. You start to believe, even worse you know, that the government is not in control. And because the police and the military are scared, they tend to be harsher and rougher when engaging with the population. 
now the population is this likely to trust and engage with the security sector. It quickly becomes a compounding cycle that advantages ISIS while disadvantages the government and its allies. In the day, the streets owned by the army and the night, they were owned by ISIS. Most of this pretty much collapses at night. And during the day, security forces, they come back. Before 2014, there was an undercover ISIS or terror rule for, for the city. These accounts of Amin Muqdad, Rashid Al-Aqidi, and Ali Baroudi were all gathered independently of each other. And they all point to the same picture. Mosul is unsettled during the day. On the surface, it appears that the government is in charge. The military and police are there on the streets. But there is a presence in the shadows. And it is ISIS. And it is generating 12 million USD a month from extortions and other crimes. ISIS are collecting intelligence. It is intimidating and coercing people trying to recruit and killing. What is the impact of such activities? ISIS are foiling in security and uncertainty during the day and controlling the night in Mosul. Now, this doesn't happen in a vacuum. It is not like ISIS are just operating in the city. The Islamic State's presence in cities, even as an undercover covert presence running a shadow government, almost inevitably means that it has a broader presence, that it is likely in the suburban outskirts of the city and in its rural surrounds. What this means is that the roads and even waterways may be regularly monitored by ISIS elements, if not essentially controlled by them. In the case of Mosul through early 2014, the roads leading in and out of the city were increasingly dangerous, especially for government, military and law enforcement personnel. What this meant was that, over time, security forces in the city were becoming increasingly cut off as logistical support, such as resupply, became more dangerous to do, especially by road. We interviewed a former Iraqi Air Force C-130 pilot, Hussein Horshid, who was flying missions in and out of Mosul in the weeks and months prior to the city's collapse. While we cannot verify all of his allegations, and Hussein emphasised that his testimony was based on his personal experiences, what Hussein alleges is deeply troubling. As a C-130 pilot, most of his missions involved the transportation of personnel, commanders and resupply of things like food, water, ammunition and weapons. In the weeks prior to the fall of Mosul, through May of 2014, as the security situation in the city and its surrounds deteriorated, Hussein claims that he personally flew notorious commanders and Shia militiamen from the Asab al-Haq, seemingly contradicting the official Iraqi government line that popular mobilization forces, or PMFs, were not deployed until after Grand Ayatollah Ali al-Sistani's fatwa in June. For transportation, we were transporting uh, personnel, soldiers, commanders to Mosul city from different parts of Iraq, especially from Baghdad. And uh, some of the commanders that uh, 
we transported from Baghdad to Mosul directly involved in the fall of Mosul because they were not competent enough or they didn't have a good reputation. One of them is Mahdi al-Gharawi, who is known as the butcher of Sunnis because he mass killed and massacred Sunnis in different portions of Iraq. That's why he was not uh, very welcomed in Mosul. And the other one was uh, Ali Ghaidan, the commander of, uh, of the Iraqi army, the chief of the Iraqi army. So these two commanders were the commanders that I took to Mosul. The other personnel and the other militiamen actually that we were transporting from Baghdad to Mosul were Asaib Ahlid Haq, which is a group of the uh, PMF, the League of Righteous People. And, and, and the time also for transportation of commanders was almost a month and a half before the fall of Mosul. So militiamen, MO, all kind of things were a month and a half before the fall of Mosul. Hussein also alleges that through May 2014, he flew tons of ammunition and weapons into Mosul that, with the defeat of Iraqi military forces, were ultimately left for the taking. After the fall of Mosul, I went back to my room and I calculated all the amount of weapons and munitions that I transported personally before the fall of Mosul. I can't reach the result that personally I have taken 120 tons of ammos and ammunition to Mosul and the Iraqi army decided to leave it behind for ISIS. To include, to include hellfires. Hellfires were uh, rockets that uh, Cessna Caravan 208 and helicopters we were carrying. Like we, we took them in order to help the Iraqi Air Force Cessna 208 and the Iraqi Army Aviation helicopters to carry them in support of, to provide close air support for the Iraqi units. But they left them all behind. And maybe when they were not able to use it because they didn't have, didn't have a launching system or a delivery system, they used it as an IED or VBIT. During a resupply mission to Mosul in the early days of June, Hussein explained that the morale and readiness of Iraqi military forces in the city was, in his view, very poor. So <clears throat> when I was taking ammunition to Mosul, and it was a couple of days before the fall of Mosul, I, uh, I, I landed, we, we, we did the taxi and we taxied, uh, we didn't be stopped at the parking area. And soldiers were offloading the ammunition boxes from the airplane. It was not my job to do that, but because the area was first hot, it was not safe for us to stay there because they were rocketing the, uh, the airbase with mortar rounds. Uh, second, I was frustrated because of the Iraqi soldiers. The Iraqi soldiers were not fit. And also, they were. They, you can tell that they are overrested, overnourished, but unprepared for fighting. One of Hussein's most extraordinary claims, which we were not able to verify, was that he personally flew high-security terrorism prisoners from Baghdad and into Mosul through the month of May. You might not believe it, because had I not been in that position, I would have not. I would have not believed it. Believed it too. So what we were doing. <clears throat> We were transporting prisoners from Abu Ghraib or Kut to, to Mosul and to Soleimani as well. We were taking all the terrorists that were conducted under Article 4 of terrorism, Iraqi terrorism law, 
we were taking them from Baghdad to Badush prison. So we took all the hard course to Badush prison and they were extracting, they were bringing back all the weak, to, weak uh, prisoners from Badush and we were taking them back to Baghdad. At least, personally, at least I've seen 250, at least 250. Because I, I, I had too many missions of, tra of transporting uh, prisoners to, to, to Mosul and to Soleimania. So the number of this, the terrorists that I transported from Baghdad and crew to Mosul were more than 250. And you know, when we are pilots, we fly airplanes and we have a, uh, we have a loadmaster who is responsible for such type of data. So it's not my job, but I remember on top of my head because I was so frustrated. We contacted Iraqi government officials about these allegations and had not received a response at the time of recording. If these allegations are true, it is very difficult to understand the logic of this decision-making. Mosul and the surrounding area is under threat. It is very unstable. Also, it is well known that ISIS attack prisons to free their comrades and grow their ranks. It is a strategy ISIS calls breaking the walls. The picture that emerges, Omar, as we near those three fateful days in June, is the impossibility of the situation facing Mosul. It is a tinderbox, full of weapons and ammunition and protected by an Iraqi military, low in morale and exhausted by constant attacks. The sense of exhaustion in the security forces seems matched only by the exhaustion of Maslawis. Let's start a couple of days earlier, on Thursday, June 5, 2014. ISIS attacked Samurra and so a curfew was called in Mosul that day. Despite the weeks and months of instability and uncertainty, a panic moved through the city, as Ali Baroudi describes here. It was a busy day, and June is, is a month uh, for the final exams for undergraduate and postgraduate uh, classes. So we were, uh, we were on campus. Uh, there was... Um, I th I, I think there was a ringing bell for emergency in in my college, and they they called on everybody to leave because there was a uh, there was a kind of uh, curfew. There was rumors for curfew, and as Muslims, we are kind of or we were kind of used to curfews. It used to happen every now and then, and uh, but that one was different because when I when I left campus. I looked at the faces of people they, they, as if they were escaping uh, a monster running after them. They were running in every direction. There was chaos, there was uh, traffic jams. In the early morning hours of Friday, June 6, 2014, ISIS launched its ground offensive on the western side of Mosul. This started the clock on what would prove to be three crucial days for the fate of the city and its people. As the attack on Mosul begins, the fear and confusion amongst the population grows. I think some of our listeners may be alarmed to hear that people were confused and surprised by the attack on Mosul, given that we have been describing a city seemingly on edge for months. But
having spent a lot of time in communities that have gone through similar experiences, what people often say is that after weeks and months of threats and instability, that becomes normal. So when the full-scale attack actually happens, it does come as a surprise. Amin Mokhtad spoke of this sense of surprise, confusion, and, for him, anger. Yes. Every Friday, Amin and his friends would walk into Mosul to play music on its busy streets. Friday the 6th of June was meant to be no different. So I, for sure, uh, it was a very angry feeling. I was uh, pissed off because they, uh, literally on um, a Friday, like uh, we heard that ISIS attacked the city or they will simply make a deal or something or something happened uh, in the streets on uh, Thursday. So we were making some shopping to do a musical uh, performance in the in the public spaces, basically in uh, Dijla city, which is uh, one of the malls in Mosul, like a bit far away from the center. So we were preparing ourselves, me and my colleague Omar Abdenasser, to do this performance. And we used to do it every week, like a flash mob in the open air. So we heard the rumors, we were like, in one of the recording, Arabia uh, recording, it's like in Dawasa, everybody know it in Mosul. And we were talking with our friend Ali, and he said, oh, uh, there's rumors that the Mosul will like be in a different power, and there's some things, and now there's a curfew, or there's like nobody should be in the streets. So I just remember I was walking uh, all the way long, on Al-Hurriya Bridge uh, just to feel or to know is that real or something. So everybody was panicked, but it was something we used to on it. I was only thinking about a musical concert that we will do, nothing else. I want to do this. This is, this is uh, like a dream to come true. So, and uh, I live in the, and uh, we say uh, the right side in the, uh, sorry, in the left side in the city, and Omar lives in the right side in the city. And we were having phone calls uh, each 10 minutes, maybe, and saying, how, how, what's happened? So in my side of the city, there's not really something. We didn't hear anything. It's just quiet. But in Mosul Jadida and this part of the city were like... Um, lots of sounds and Omar was telling me that no it's gone they will just simply take the the the, the city and I just see them uh, these are like these the fuckers or whatever he just mentioned them in a very bad words I was like no please we have the concert I still have hope until Friday but uh, minute by minute was very fast on Saturday literally they were in our streets and the uh, other side of the city, which is the left side of the city, uh, and saying Allahu Akbar. And I was very angry uh, because it's something very huge. Amin has brought us now to Saturday, June 7. I remember it well. People are leaving Mosul. The exodus from the city had started. 
but there are many who are still staying. Why? Because it's not easy to simply pack and leave everything. After decades of war and hardship, people have a high their shoulder. Besides, people are confused about what was really going on. But by this stage, there are some ISIS members on the streets. And to many people's surprise, they are Iraqi. And not just Iraqis. They are Iraqis from Nineveh. They are not the foreigners that people were generally expecting. I mean, of course there were foreigners, but those holding the streets were mostly the Iraqis. And when the people ask them, who are you? Why are you here? Their response sowed even more confusion. Here is Russia Alakidi again. The belief that Daesh um, or ISIS were Saudi Arabians and Yemenis and Palestinians and Tunisians and Afghans, Pakistanis, no one really thought they were Iraqi, even though the leadership at the time were Iraqi. Um, they, they were dealing with ISIS or Daesh as if it were a foreign entity. And that's why when, um, when the city eventually fell, fell in 2014, in June, um, of course, I immediately called my family. I called all my friends. Um, and they all said, we have no idea who they were. We, they told us Daesh has taken over. And that's when a massive exodus happened. If you remember, almost half a million people attempted to flee. And then they said, well, we found out that they actually weren't Daesh. My question was, how do you know they weren't Daesh? I said, well, we asked some of them, who are you? And they said, well, we're rebels. Who are? Don't call us Daesh. And they were young Iraqi. And I think some people were still in denial that, okay, maybe there are elements of Daesh, but overall, these are Iraqis. They're from the rural areas. They're saying we're rebels. They're part of a baby revolution, and their aim is to just force Maliki to resign. So now it's Sunday, June 8. Fear and confusion have reigned over the city since dawn on Friday. Thousands of people have left or are trying to leave. But now, something quite extraordinary happens. At about 8pm on Sunday the 8th of June, then Governor of Nineveh and Mosul, Athena Nujayfi, makes a statement that tells the people of Mosul to stay in the city and protect it. Here is some of what he said. We must ask ourselves, is it allowed for us to abandon our homes as refugees and displaced people in the east and west of the earth, living in tents in which we are expelled from one place to another, and we beg for the morsel from the people of goodness? Or do we defend our homes and properties and dignity and be buried in our land so that our sons and descendants after us may remember us as they say, here were men? I am confident in the pride of Mosul and the zeal of its people and their ability to overcome this trial and to be steadfast. To restore life to the town of the prophet Jonah, peace be upon him, and expel all the strangers from the city and restore the city to its glorious image to remain a mark on the forehead of time. My people, tribe, and mode, indeed, Our slogan always is that we should precede you in the days of risks and terror and place our chests in sacrifice for your chests. So do not forsake your religion and do not forsake your homeland. I have decided to remain on the land of Mosul, the hunchback, 
to sacrifice for it. So how many from its people will stand with me? It is my day and your day and the day of your city. So be steadfast for it and be its men. Omar, what happened after Governor Nujafi's public address? He appeared in the middle of the night next to the governorate building, holding his weapon, and there is a video of this, holding his weapon, AK-47. That's how the confusion happened in Mosul. He was saying that there is no reason to worry. He was addressing the people. There is no reason to worry. Everything is under control. And those who came to Mosul to liberate us from the oppression of the central government of Baghdad, the sectarian government, those are our brothers, and they are here to free us from that injustice. And this stopped all the movement of the people. You know, the people were leaving the city of Mosul. Thousands of people, my family is included. We, we, were, we were escaping the city. Everyone was escaping the city. A day later, Nujayfi leaves Mosul. In doing so, he condemned Mosulis to a fate he himself wouldn't face. When I asked him why he left, this is what he said. With regards to myself, I was targeted for killing by Daesh, so my departure from the city was necessary for me because the gunfire began to reach me when I left. Let me be clear. There were many reasons why people returned to Mosul. For example, when the borders to Kurdistan were closed, many of those who fled to the east to escape would ultimately return because they had nowhere else to go. It is also important to acknowledge that when a senior, respected political figure makes such an announcement, it influences the decision people make. Let's hear testimonies from Maslawis, all of whom requested that their identities be kept secret for fear of reprisals. For them... It is the first time telling their stories. Among the reasons why we did not go out and leave the city were the statements of Athil al-Nujafi on June 8th, in which he sent a message of assurance to the people of the city not to leave and abandon the city, only for us to be surprised subsequently by the fall of the city on June 10th. On June 8th, the former governor of Nineveh, Athil al-Nujafi, appeared with a statement and said that there is no reason to leave our homes. He reassured us about the security situation and that within days, things would return to normal. So we were surprised that on the morning of June 10th, Mosul fell and everything was lost. With regards to the statements that we were hearing, frankly, I did not see them personally, but at the time, my grandfather's household saw them and they told us that the governor came out and said that the governor showed his rifle and was walking in the governorate, and that there was nothing wrong and there was security. I was walking on the street, and I remember perhaps one or two days after this clip was made and spread that Mosul fell after the statement came out. 
Of course, from the day of June 6, 2014, Mosul entered more or less a state of war and panic. Many things were obscure that we didn't know. We were hearing that there were terrorist personnel entering the city of Mosul. On June 8th, the governor came out on satellite channels for the city of Mosul and on social media. He sent a message reassuring the inhabitants that the city was safe and that there were only rumors and that those things we were hearing were not actually present and that there was only a minor attack that was put under control. So, most of the people were reassured and stayed in their homes. So, the main reason was the local government represented by the governor of Nineveh, Athil al-Nujafi. It is hard to say exactly how many Mosulis returned to the city because of the reassurances of Mr. Nujafi. Whatever it is measured in thousands or hundreds or the dozens, the tragedy for those people is real and lifelong. Those what-if questions are not an intellectual exercises for them, but a hunting and traumatizing reminder of what could have been. I asked Mr. Nujafi how he wanted to respond to those Mosulis who said they returned or stayed in Mosul because of his words and actions. In truth, I'm surprised at the question because, as I told you, the people who were leaving the city, no one was preventing them from leaving the city a month after Daesh seized control of the city. So these words, their only meaning is to distort and pin mistakes on my address that was calling for the formation of popular committees, and that Mosul should not be alone, let us fight. But no one responded on that day. There have been allegations made on the public record that Mr. Nujafi was linked to the Islamic State of Iraq and had, allegedly, been compromised by the group. For example, in an Islamic State of Iraq letter dated August 7, 2009, which has been published by the West Point Military Academy's Combating Terrorism Centre, an individual named Hatim was writing to an unidentified leader, outlining the intents and activities conducted by this individual and his cell to infiltrate the government in Mosul, as requested at the time by a senior Islamic State of Iraq leader, Abu Kaswara. The letter states, Our activities were not limited to contacting the minister and the director of the office of Al-Isawi only, but we also directed our activities towards Athil al-Nijayfi, the new governor of Nineveh, and the group around him, by testing the extent of their desire in dealing with us economically and financially. The approach was not done by promises or agreeing on anything, because we have been informed by our immediate supervisor at that time that we have a different approach in contacting the governor Athil al-Nijayfi and his second deputy, Judge Hassan, and Jabr al-Abdurabu, the president of the Governorate Council and his deputy Daldar al-Zabari, who mentioned to us that he has direct communication channels with the above-mentioned officials that we don't know of. But we are still keeping the line of communication with Athil because of the old friendly relationship between him and our brothers Abu Ahmad and Abu Laith. Mr. Najafi was keen to address these allegations, and specifically the contents of the 2009 Islamic State of Iraq letter. 
to summarize he largely verified the contents of the letter but denied any direct involvement with the Islamic State of Iraq. It was issued in 2009, and it speaks about another issue on the subject of contractors and the like. And all that it says on the matter is that there are personalities in the Islamic State who said that they can reach Athil al-Nujefi via two persons. And the two persons whom I mentioned to you are one called Abu Layth and another called Abu Ahmed. Abu Layth is Abdelilah al-Dabagh, and Abu Ahmed, in truth, I have forgotten his name. He was assistant post director, post and phone directory. I've forgotten his name. He was a retired brigadier general. In truth, I have forgotten because he was not among the personalities who came to see me frequently. The reason why we are highlighting all of this is simple. It was a recurring theme in interviews with Maslawis, with those Maslawis who were actually there, in the city of Mosul, in June 2014. For that reason alone, it matters, and we have done everything possible to present the information that is publicly available and provide opportunities for those involved to respond. It also reveals yet another factor that contributed to the sense of confusion for local Maslawis as the battle for Mosul reached its final stages. In the afternoon of 9 June, an ISIS suicide attack using a truck bomb targeted the third bridge in Mosul. This was really the beginning of the end as ISIS forces flooded into the eastern parts of Mosul city. By June 10th, the battle is basically over. Throughout this time, and really until ISIS declares its Wathiqat al-Madina, also known as Charter of the City, on the 13th of June, the group is surprisingly quiet. When people ask the Iraqi militants, who are you and why are you here? They are told, we are rebels, or don't worry, we are locals like you. In terms of formal messaging from the group, there is very little in Mosul itself. But ISIS do something else. And I am sure they did this on purpose. While ISIS are relatively quiet, they do not shut Mosulis off from receiving Iraqi TV or radio. What do we hear when we turn on our TVs and radios? That we, that Mosulis, are being blamed for the capture of Mosul. That we are guilty of bringing ISIS onto the streets. That's what we were hearing. Again, it is vital to understand that many Maslawis did return to Mosul, and for very human reasons. They had nowhere else to go. Everything they owned was in Mosul, and ISIS took advantage of their desperation. Here are more local testimonies. The thing that made us stay in Mosul was that on the day of the fall, my family and I and hundreds of families left Mosul. We remained waiting for hours on end at the checkpoints of Duhok and Arbil, and the checkpoints were closed and they were not letting any family enter, so we were compelled to return to our homes. In the beginning, Daesh gave security to everyone and assured us that there was nothing wrong and that we did not enter to harm you, 
and among these addresses, so it gave us assurance that we should stay in Mosul. Later, on June 10th, or during the night of June 10th, there were people who left Mosul, and we were among them. We left Mosul and returned on the next day. Many people returned because they wanted to return to their properties. There were people who tried when they left their homes, and that they had left their valuables in their homes. They wanted to return as they felt all this was precious to them. They did not want to lose them. There were people who felt the material and economic situation did not allow them to go outside Mosul and begin their new life from nothing and be displaced people in camps or begin to rent a place to stay in. So they returned to Mosul because their material situation did not allow them to follow through with leaving. So here we are, trapped in a city. Many of us tried to escape while the rest of the country is watching us and thinking we are to blame. Now, of course, there were people who supported ISIS, mostly people who actively supported them. But for most of us, we are trapped between the world's most feared terrorist organization and the nation. Sometimes it felt like the world that thinks we are ISIS enablers. One of the great myths that need to be busted here is that the people of Mosul allowed ISIS just to walk in and they supported them. For the vast majority of people, this was simply not the case, including, of course, for Mosul Sunni population. They are, as much as any group, victims of ISIS. The exodus of hundreds of thousands of people from Mosul, the sense of betrayal so many felt, the testimonies we have heard, I hope that these all help to paint a far more nuanced picture and show such claims of widespread, voluntary, populist support to be nonsense. Having worked in communities who have been subjected to ISIS occupation, one of the key challenges they face is dealing with ISIS propaganda, on the one hand, that inevitably presents an image of the local population as active supporters happily living under ISIS control, while, on the other hand, dealing with perceptions from their countrymen and women that portray these communities as ISIS as members complicit in ISIS crimes. Omar, I know this tension, this challenge, was a key motivating factor for starting Mosulai. This was about Daesh on one hand. On the other hand, there was the even more difficult perception of anti-Muslim propaganda that was coming from the rest of Iraqis. So I was fighting on two fronts, alone. On the front of Daesh, and the front of the rest of Iraq, who were accusing the people of Mosul of being part of Daesh. And I was trying to tell them that what you are doing is simply you are handing over the people of Mosul to Daesh by what you are saying, because Daesh is using this propaganda to convince the people that you have no other option but Daesh. Another really important part of presenting a more nuanced understanding of what happened in Mosul is to highlight Maslawi resistance. For example, amidst all of this mayhem, as people are panicking and not sure what is going on, Amin's act of defiance with his cello Peter is an amazing story. I just took Peter on the rooftop and put the, the phone and I just played one of the 
famous songs for ACDC band, which called Thunderstruck on the cello. And um, I just posted it on Facebook on the same day saying, um, I'm still doing what I like to do and the place I like and the time I like, I don't care about anything. And I put like an hashtag angry help but the people who saw the video they were sharing the video everywhere saying this guy from Mosul now uh, among all the, the stories among all the uh, tales they're telling us about what's happening now now in Mosul there's someone playing music on the roof there is also a sense that the Iraqi army collapsed in its defense of Mosul in June 2014 And that is absolutely true. There is no other way to look at it. But there was extraordinary bravery shown by Iraqi soldiers and police against impossible odds as well. It's really important for people to realize that many Iraqi patriots bravely fought to the end. I was able to see what was happening. and I I documented the story of that last soldier from the Iraq security forces, from the police, by the way. Only the police were able to fight at that day. And when his ammunition uh, finished and he refused to surrender, Daesh was telling him that we will not kill you. You just have to surrender yourself. And he would refuse. And then he kept shooting. I remember that the moment I heard him that he shoot bullet by bullet, it means that he is out of ammunition. And that means that this is the end. Once he stopped shooting, Daesh started responding with heavy fire. And I saw him in the morning. There is no space in his body without a bullet. And they also put another policeman on fire in the ambulance. They burned him. He was wounded, but they burned him alive. Next time on Mosul and the Islamic State. They created the chaos and then they ended that chaos. Today, by God's grace, you have a state and caliphate which will return your dignity, might, rights and leadership. For every video that was published online, there was so much more happening in the real world. Women's movements, women's bodies and women's free will were regulated. It's only when the Islamic State started beheading journalists and aid workers that the international coalition did something. I know some politicians were asking me to bomb civilian areas. I started witnessing this kind of violence. It was too much for me. It was beyond my capacity. Thank you.